0: Well, I want to say good morning. I want to welcome to those of you who are here at our Sugarloaf campus and those who are at our Mill Creek campus, those who are watching online. We are one church in two locations, and I'm teaching today from our Sugarloaf campus. And if you don't attend, you're just kind of on the computer, I want to encourage you to get out of your house and come to one of our campuses and see what God is doing and kind of get in on it firsthand for yourself. You know, for thousands of years, uh, you know this if you went to school, The greatest philosophers and teachers and thinkers have constantly said that there are four huge questions that that we all struggle with. Uh, There's the question of origin. Who who am I? Uh, How did I get here? Then there is the, the question of meaning. Well, why am I here? It's one thing to be here, but why are we here instead of not being here? And then there is the question of destiny. Where do I go after I die. And then today we're going to deal with the third question, which is the question of morality. What is right and what is wrong? How can I tell the difference between right and wrong? And by the way, who gets to decide? Who makes the call what's right and wrong? And can I even really know the difference? Can I really know that there's right and wrong? As a matter of fact, Why is it that from the time that we're born, even before we become even hardly more than a little child, we just naturally know and feel some things are right? And we just naturally know and feel that some things are wrong. Where does this ought to do come from? Where does this feeling of ought not to do come from? Well, we've been dealing with these questions in a series that we called Stumped. Because what we're trying to do is literally cut life's biggest questions down to size. Now, we're not using a real ax. What we are using is what the Bible calls itself, which is a sword. And we're just trying to take these questions one by one and say, okay, what does the biblical perspective say? What does the, what we believe to be the Word of God have to say? So as we talk about this morning, you know, what's right, what's wrong, who makes the call, who decides, how do we know the difference? I, I wanna share with you what I believe is really the majority perspective in our country and, and actually in much of the world. And it comes from uh, a, an atheist. Uh, this lady lives in Canada. I, I've never heard of her. You would never heard of her either. But I, I came across this, and, I, and when I read it, I said, well, that pretty much articulates what many people and more and more people are thinking, both in this country and around the world. Now, this is what she said. She said, I have been told that without God, there can be no morals. And that, as an atheist, I can have no morals. I disagree. I believe in love, hope, honor, loyalty, honesty, trust, respect, etc. Those things don't come from God. They come from within and from human interaction. If you need God to tell you what's wrong and what's right, and you can't figure it out on your own, then you may be part of the problem. Now, I want to give her credit because she really has indeed put this question squarely in front of us. And here is the question. Can you have, and the key word here is objective, can you have objective morality without God? More and more people in our culture are telling us that. The ACLU would tell you that. Planned Parenthood would tell you that. There are a lot of liberal professors in our high schools and in our colleges and our universities that would absolutely defend that proposition and they would tell you that. Well, amazingly, there is a story in the Bible that tells us exactly what can happen, what has happened, what did happen, and what will happen if you take that approach. And we see this viewpoint played out, and and let me just kind of warn you uh, this morning about something. This is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. It is a story that most of you, I would say, dare say, probably you either have never read this story, or if you have read it, you have forgotten it. And for some of you, the reason why you forgot it is after you read it, you said, I never want to remember that story again. Okay, it is just that kind of a story. But what happens in the story and why it happened in the story and what was going on behind the story really is demonstrated right here in our nation every single Day. So, if you brought a copy of God's Word, and I hope you're saying, man, I want to hear this story, I want you to turn to a book of the Bible called Judges, okay? It's in the Old Testament. Let me just kind of get you started. If you go to the beginning of the Bible, there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. It's right in about the seventh book in the Bible. Now, let me just go ahead and warn you of something right now. If you were to put this story on the screen, if, you, if Hollywood were to make a movie out of this it would easily get an R rating, if not worse. And I'm, I'm not really exaggerating, and you'll see why I say this. Let me give you the backdrop of the story, then we're gonna begin telling you the story. The story takes place in the nation of Israel. There's no king, there is no central government, there are 12 tribes, and each tribe kind of functions as its own principality. They're, they kind of function as their own city, own state. They, they, they kind of have their own laws and their own, Jurisdiction. Now, actually, they, they did have a king, and his name was God. And actually, they did have laws, and a law. It was called God's commandments. But you see, at this point in the history of this nation, they had discarded God. They had totally disobeyed his commandments. So this story has a very ominous beginning. So we're going to pick up in Judges chapter 19. We're going to pick up in verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, that's important to remember. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him a servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And she brought and, and, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. So here we have a Levite. Now let me tell you why that's important. A Levite was a priest. And he, so he was supposed to be a man of God. He was supposed to be a very holy man. He was a custodian of God's law, except he wasn't. He wasn't a godly man. He didn't pay any attention to God's Word. He was a very wicked man. And we're told that he had a concubine. Now, if you don't know what a concubine is, you've got to go back to biblical days, a lot different than it is today in some ways. A concubine is is what, what we would call today a legalized mistress. Now, there are men today that have mistresses. We know that. There may be even a man, some of Maybe you've got a mistress on the side. But it's always on the side. It's always in secret. Back in Bible days, you didn't make a secret of it. It was a legalized way of doing business. A man had a wife, but a man also had Concubines. Now, God allowed this, but God never encouraged it. God never wanted it, and God never approved it. But that was life back in those days. Well, this concubine, in effect, becomes an adulteress because, ladies, I hate to tell you, there was a double standard. A man could have a wife and many concubines, but a woman could only have one man. Okay, you say, well, some things never change. I get that. You're going to see that more in this story. So I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's fair. And you can be upset about it. That's just the way things were. So in other words, the husband of the concubine could have other concubines and, of course, had a wife. But the concubine could only have the husband. Well, evidently, this concubine cheats on her master. She commits adultery. He evidently finds out about it. She's afraid of him, so she escapes, and she goes back to her father's house. Well, after about four months, the Levite begins to feel bad about the whole situation, and he, and he really wants this concubine to come back. So he goes to, to, to Bethlehem to, to retrieve the, 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 this, this woman to, from her father's house. Well, the, this is kind of a strange thing. Evidently, the father doesn't care that she's given herself to being a concubine. And the father really doesn't even care that she has committed adultery. When the son-in-law comes up, shows up, he's just glad the son-in-law's there. So they, they party it up for a few days, and, and, and they eat, drink, and they're making merry, and there's no hard feelings with anybody. But finally, the son-in-law decides it's time to take the concubine back to Ephraim, where, where they're from. So they leave Bethlehem, and they go to Jerusalem, which is just a few miles away. If you've been with me to Israel, if you go with me next year, you'll see. It's only just a few miles away. And and it was close to dark, and they they needed a place to stay, but there was a problem. They couldn't stay in Jerusalem. You say, well, why couldn't they stay in Jerusalem? Well, at that time, the Jebusites, which was Gentile, they were Gentiles, the Jebusites had taken over Jerusalem. And no Jew could stay in a city of Gentiles. Number one, it wasn't safe, even if he wanted to. And number two, they were very prejudiced against Gentiles, and so he did not want to stay there. And so they decided to kind of go on to a town called Gibeah. Now, when they arrive in this little town called Gibeah, here's what they do. There was another interesting custom you had in Bible days. They didn't have hotels and motels like you would think about. Yeah, They didn't have motel sixes and Holiday Inn Expresses and all that. And, and so what you would do, and, and a lot of people couldn't afford it even if you did. So when you needed a place to stay and you were in a strange city, there was a custom that you would go to the city square and you just sit down. Well, the Mideast, even to this day, is true. There's a very strong law of hospitality in the Mideast. And if somebody came along and they saw you sitting on the city square, the law of hospitality said they were obligated to take you into their home. They were obligated to take you in. They were obligated to feed you and give you water and give you a place to stay, at least until the next day where you can begin your your journey again. Well, the problem was this city called Gibeah didn't have a lot of nice people in it. You're going to see that in just a minute. And nobody picked them up. Nobody opened up their home. Everybody just walked by and ignored them until finally this old man comes by, and he's not even from Gibeah. He's actually from Ephraim, where this guy's from. But evidently, he has a house. He has a place to stay there in Gibeah. And so he takes them into his home. Now, at this point, up to this point, if this were a movie, it would be maybe PG-13, okay? Depending on how graphic you got with the adultery and all that, it might be a PG-13 kind of a movie, all right? But I'm being very honest. If there are children in here right now, you better cover their ears and cover their eyes. I'm serious. Now we're down in verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, uh, let me say, when they say that we may know him, it wasn't just to find out his name and his height and his weight, okay? You understand that. They were talking about doing some very bad things. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man... Do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. (laughs) It is what it is. I mean, if you're expecting commentary from me, I don't think I'm going to say anything else. There's just not too much to say. I I think you would agree. If you you don't know the Bible or know much about the Bible, there's not a more vile, wicked, make you sick to your stomach scene in all of the Bible than what I just read to you. It gets worse. Verse 26. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go his own way, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. This gutless coward of a man allows this concubine to be raped and abused all night, doesn't do a thing about it. Gets up the next morning, finds her lying at the door. When he finds her lying at the door, does he call 911? Does he try to give her CPR? Does he bandage her wounds? Does he take her in and lie her on a bed and see if he can do anything for her physical condition? No, what does he say to her very tenderly and lovingly? Get up, time to go. Let's go about our business. But then he realizes she's dead. And now he's angry. Oh, he's not angry because she was raped all night. He's not angry because she was abused. He's angry because he's lost his concubine. He's angry because he no longer has his property. So the law of hospitality has been violated. His concubine's been raped. She's been murdered. Justice must be done. Revenge must be taken. But he can't do it by himself. To make sure that all of his fellow Israelites will back him up, and they'll come to his aid, and they'll make sure his justice is done, he does the following. Chapter 19, verse 20. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. In other words, here's what this man does. To make sure that all of his fellow Israelites will come to his aid, to make sure that they will make sure that justice is done he cuts this woman's up, pieces of body up into 12 pieces sends it out to the trials with a little note saying okay what are you going to do about this now there's one thing we could all agree on if you open up a, a box in your if you, if you go go to your mailbox tomorrow and you open up a box and you find a hand or a foot or a leg in it it will get your attention right we'll agree on that okay so it, it has got there Attention mission accomplished now 11 tribes are royally ticked off They are as mad as mad can get and they are determined. They're going to see to it that justice is done So they form an army of four hundred Thousand men to take care of this problem and to bring this man to justice now they take three vows This is important a part of the source. So don't miss this. They take three promises They make three promises. They take three vows all 400,000 men take these oaths number one No one will go home until Gibeah is attacked and destroyed in other words Nobody gets to go home. Nobody goes on leave. Nobody gets furloughed until the deed is done until justice is taken number two Anyone who does not join against Gibeah will be killed. In other words, this is not a volunteer army. You're being drafted, and you either put on the uniform, or we'll kill you on the spot. Number three. No one will allow his daughter to marry anyone from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, keep that one in mind. That's going to come back later on in the story, okay? So, you can't go home until the, until the, until the job is done. If you, don't, if you don't decide to fight, you're going to die. And after this thing is over, if you've got any daughters, you are not to give them to a man that belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. Now, at this point in the story, a very reasonable demand is made, okay? We're in chapter 20 now, verse 12. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Now, this story is getting more bizarre. All this 400,000 man army wanted was what you would expect they wanted. They said they come to the tribe of Benjamin and they say, look, we don't want any trouble. This doesn't need to get out of hand. We don't want war. All we want, bring us the guilty parties. Just bring us the men that did this evil deed They deserve to die. We believe in capital punishment. We're going to put them to death. The evil will be purged from Israel. We'll go our home. You'll go to your home. We'll all get along. We'll all forget the whole thing ever happened, and we will live happily ever after. And what do the Benjamites do? (laughs) They say, no, we're going to fight against what is right. And we're going to fight for what is wrong. Now you're sitting there going, are you kidding me? They're, gonna, they're willing to lay their life on the line for what's wrong? And they're willing to lay their life on the line to fight against what's right? Does that surprise you? Do you read your paper? What do you think is happening up in Washington every single day? So let me just call this out and save your email because if you email me about this, you're going to make me very angry. It is a disgrace that we don't have the moral, turpitude, and integrity to defund something as wicked as Planned Parenthood. It is disgraceful. (laughs) It is disgraceful. Don't tell me what all the good they do. I don't want to hear it. We have people that will fight for what's wrong and fight against what is right. Some things never change. The Benjamites say, we're not going to bring these men out to you. You're not going to have justice done here. So because of time, we'll move ahead in the story. After two unsuccessful attacks where 2,000 Israelites are killed, on the third attack, they're finally successful. And they wipe out the entire tribe of Benjamin except 600 Benjamites who escape. They, they, they get away. But they're not done. Chapter 20, verse 48. Now listen. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, the men, the beast, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. They kill everything, they kill everyone. They kill the dogs, they kill the cats, they kill the cattle, they kill the cattle, they kill the animals. They set the towns on fire. It is a scorched earth policy on steroids. But now the Israelites realize something because they do have a conscience. And after it's all said and done, they go, "Wait a minute. We've almost wiped out an entire tribe." It's not our job to say how many tribes there ought to be. God's the one that chose 12 tribes, and there are now 11 tribes, and only one tribe barely in existence. And so, their sense of family kicks in, and they realize, we don't want to be responsible for the total disappearance of the 12th tribe. And they knew that there were 600 male Benjamites who left, who escaped, and the only way the tribe would survive was if these 600 men could marry women and have children to propagate the tribe and continue to live. But there was a problem. You remember the problem? They had taken an oath. They said, can't marry our daughters. Not going to give our daughters. We say, you cannot do that. So you can't marry them. Well, who are they going to marry? They can't marry Gentile daughters because they marry Gentile women. Then they're not going to propagate the purity of the race. So they got a quandary. But then all of a sudden, they remembered something else. Chapter 21, verse 8. And they said, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah?" And behold... No one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. In other words, of all the tribes and all the people, I don't know how it fell through the cracks, but Jabesh-Gilead had not sent anyone to fight. Okay, so what are they going to do? you think the solution's real easy. you say, okay, man, this has really kind of worked out for everybody's good. They'll just simply go, and they'll simply take some of the daughters from the tribe of Jabesh Gilead, give them to the Benjamites, let them marry, let them have children, and everybody can live happily ever after. No, they didn't do it that way. Here's what they did, verse 10. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there, And they commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So they, 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 they go into one of their own cities, one of their own tribes, who had not contributed to anyone to the army. They kill every man, every woman, every child, except for 400 virgins. They say, okay, we found 400 women, so now these 400 men can marry, and they can propagate the race. However, they got one more problem. Do you remember how many men escaped? 600. 600 minus 400 is 200. So they still got 200 men that need a wife. So what do you do now? Well, they remembered something else. There was an annual festival of the Lord that took place in a town called Shiloh. And and, and it was kind of like a Jewish Mardi Gras. It took place every year. So here's what they said to those 200 men. They said, look, we don't want any more bloodshed. We've had enough bloodshed. So here's what we're gonna let you do. You know, there's this festival that takes place up in Shiloh every year. They said, yeah, we know about that. They said, okay. We're going to give you permission to go up to the festival. You find any virgin that's up there. You can kidnap that virgin. You can take her as a wife, and you can force them into marriage. And they said, well, what am I, how are we going to deal with the fathers? They're not going to be real happy with this. And so the Israelites say, we'll take care of the fathers. And here's how they did it. When they went up there and they took those 200 virgins, of course, the dads are mad. They're upset. They're going to defend the honor of their daughters, except all the Israelites went up to Gilead and they said, um, went up to Shiloh and said, we're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. You either let your daughter go, and you let your daughter be forcibly married to this man, or we're going to kill you and your family and your stock, and we're going to wipe you out. What do you want to do? Well, guess what? 200 dads had a wonderful wedding, right? They said, okay, we get it. And all the fathers gave the brides away, and so the story ends. Now, if you're sitting there saying, I can't believe that's in the Bible. You know what somebody has called that story? They've called it the sewer of Scripture. The sewer of Scripture. I I can tell you, I've read the Bible many times. It is probably the most degrading, most disgusting story you'll ever read. There's not one admirable character in the whole story. There's not one noble act in the whole story. There's not one hero in the whole story. And by the way, this is one of those stories that parents don't read to their children. As a matter of fact, can I, let me say something. You better hope your child never says, Daddy, would you tell me the story about the concubine and the chainsaw? You, you just better hope that doesn't happen because you really don't want that child to know this story. It's an unbelievably sordid, shocking, sad story. And you say, Pastor, how could that happen? How, how could people act that way? How, how could people do those kind of things? Well, the conclusion of the story is just mind blowing. So if you want to know how all of this could come about, if you want to know how all this could happen and then everybody could just go back to their home, just do business as usual, sleep like a baby, and live happily ever after, listen to this. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and went, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Now just wait. You mean after the rape, after the killings, after the genocide, after the mutilation, and after the indifference of all of it, you mean people just went back to work? You mean people just went back to their farms? You mean people just went back to their their places of business? People just went back to their hobbies? Yep. And here's the explanation. Because in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own way eyes. Sound familiar? Pick up your newspaper. That's why marriage has gone down the tubes. If I think gay marriage is all right, it's all right. I don't care what you say. It's okay. I don't care what you think sucking the brains out of an unborn baby is right or wrong okay every man did what was right in his own eyes these three chapters give us the ugliest story of the Bible but here's what I don't want you to miss don't miss this at every stage of what was done they thought they were doing what was right not one time, not once did anybody say, this is wrong. You can't do this. It's right in my eyes. They like it's right. I must be right. I call my own shots. I police my own life. I go by what I think is right. I don't care what this says. I don't care what you say. I don't care what he says. I'm going to do what's right. In my own eyes. When the men of Gibeah went to that house and said, bring that man out so we can rape him homosexually, they thought they were doing what was right in their own eyes. When that man threw his concubine out as a sacrifice to be raped and abused all night, they thought they were doing what was right. When those Israelites went out and wiped out every man and wiped out every woman and wiped out every child and killed every beast, they thought they were doing what was right. It never occurred to any of them that they were doing what was wrong because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It never says one time, That anybody did what they thought was wrong in their own eyes. So they just swathed and they just covered and they just camouflaged their conscience with this thought if I think it's right it must be right. So now we're going to pinpoint the problem. Now we're going to get to the heart of this issue and here's why you cannot have real morality, you cannot have true morality, and you cannot have objective morality without God. You ready? If you don't hear anything else, here it is. When God goes, anything goes, and everything goes. End of discussion. When God goes, anything goes, and everything goes. So when you try to make, make right and wrong a matter of human choice, human decision, or human reason... You get out on a limb, and it will break every single time. See, look, one of two things have to be true, okay? We're all intelligent enough to figure this out. Either what is right is right because that's the way you see it, or right is right because that's the way God sees it. Now, sometimes, hopefully, those things, and most of the time we pray those things will line up, but either what we believe is right is right because we say it is, and what we say is right is right because of what God said it is. Now, what I simply want to do is give you three simple reasons now why with God, only with God you can have morality. Only with God can you really know what's right and wrong, and only with God can you really tell the difference Now, the, long, the longest part of the message is already over. These are going to be very, very brief. I'm just going to give you three reasons why you cannot have, and here's the key word, you cannot have objective morality without God. You can have subjective morality. I, I would assume that everybody in this room thinks that it's just wrong to put Jews in gas ovens. I, I'm just assuming you, you would agree with that. Well, Hitler didn't. Hitler thought he was doing all of us a big favor by doing that. Well, who's right and who's wrong? Well, we're right. Who says? It's your opinion. Hitler has a right to his opinion. And oh, by the way, had Hitler won the war, you'd have been dead wrong. So only with God can you have true objective morality. Three reasons why. Ready? Real quick. Number one, there are moral values we should believe in. There are moral values we should believe in. Now, let me, I want you to understand what I'm about to tell you here. I am not standing up here telling you that you have to believe in God in order to believe what's good. I don't believe that either. I don't believe you have to believe in God to do what's good. I know atheists do good do good things. I know infidels and unbelievers. I know people who don't believe in Jesus, don't believe the Bible, and they do good things. I'm not saying that you cannot formulate a standard of values that that, that may be good and and that you should live by without God. I'm not saying that, nor am I saying that you have to believe in God to believe that morality does exist. I'm not saying that either. The question I'm addressing is not the fact of goodness. The question I'm, I'm addressing is the foundation of goodness. To say there is a right and a wrong that's always right and always wrong, if you say that, if you say that, if you can think of even one thing, you'd say, there is one thing I absolutely believe is always right under all circumstances. Or if you can say, there is one thing I believe that's always wrong in all circumstances. You just said whether you realize it or not, then there must be some universal authority that, that declares it's right or wrong regardless of what other people think. I go back to my example. We believe the Holocaust was wrong. Adolf Hitler believed he was doing the world a favor. Well, if there's no God, it's just a matter of opinion. You got a right to yours, he got a right to his. And I can never tell you what's right. You can never tell me what's wrong. And if I can never tell you what's right, i.e., well, that may be right for you, but it's not right for me. That may be wrong for you, it's not wrong for me. Well, if that's true, then that means there can be no final, ultimate, objective, right, or wrong. And if there's no ultimate, objective, final, right, or wrong, you know what that means? Then you just do what's right in your own eyes. That's what's left. So, problem is this. What messes that whole deal up, the fly in the ointment, is God has told us what's right. And God has told us what's wrong. And it really doesn't matter to God whether you like it or not, agree with it or not. Can I just, can I just let you know on a secret? If you're an atheist this morning, can I just tell you this? It doesn't bother God you don't believe in him. You think he loses sleep over that? He do not care. You think it bothers God that you don't agree with his laws, but in the end, it doesn't matter. His laws are true whether you believe them or not. And the word of God is very plain. There is a right and there is a wrong and they're found in his commandments. Psalm 119, 160 puts it this way. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. In other words, the psalmist says, God tells us what we can and should do. God tells us what we can't and shouldn't do, and what he tells us, he tells everybody, and what he tells us at any time, he tells us for all time. There are moral values we should believe in. Number two, there are moral virtues we should live by. There are moral virtues we should live by. Now, again, I'm not saying this. Over the last several decades, anthropologists have done an exhaustive study of the various cultures of the world. You know what one of the most astounding findings they they have discovered over the last several years, over the last several, probably about the last 50 years? Here's what they've discovered. Morality is universal. Morality is universal. Scholars have never found a culture ever, not past or present. They've never found a culture that doesn't have some system of morality. You go to any culture in the world, go to any group of people in the world, they have a set of rules. They have a set of things. They say, okay, these are right, these are wrong, these you do, these you don't. Every single culture has that. Now, the standards of morality may differ from one culture to another or even within a culture. But every culture knows there is a difference between right and wrong, between what ought to be and what, not, or what ought not to be. And as matter of fact, Jesus even said, believe it or not, these moral virtues can be summed up in one single word. And that word needs to flow in two directions. And I bet you know what that word is, right? That word is love. Jesus said, That's it. Jesus said, Hey, I can tell you the virtues you ought to live by. It's a vertical virtue love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it is a horizontal virtue love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, When you follow those two commandments, what do you think you'll find? You'll find loyalty, you'll find honesty you'll find generosity, you'll find sacrifice. In other words, you'll find what's good and you'll find what is right. So there are moral moral values that we should believe in. There are moral virtues that we should live by. And listen to this, here's last. There is a moral vision we will be judged by. And we'll finish up with right here. Let me tell you a final reason why God must be necessary for morality to exist. Final reason. If there is such a thing as right and wrong, and I'm I'm assuming most of us believe that, if there is such a thing as right and wrong, if there is such a thing as moral and immoral, then this is one thing, I don't know how you can argue with this next statement. If there's such a thing as doing right and doing wrong, and such a thing as doing things that are moral and immoral, the only way that people will ever be truly and totally and finally held accountable for whether they did what was right or whether they did what was wrong is if there is a God. If there's no God, then nobody will really be held morally accountable. See, only with God can you know two things will happen. Only with God can you know evil will be punished. Wrong will be rectified. And only with God can you know Goodness and righteousness will be rewarded. In other words, we all want the scale of justice to balance, right? You've seen the scales of justice. You know, ladies, justice is supposed to be blind. We want the scales balanced. Only God balances the scales. Because here's the cold, hard truth the atheist didn't want to admit. If there is no God, Hitler gets away with it. forcing than that, and I'm going to deal with this next week. <clears throat> if there is no God, why do you even care about doing what's right? Why does it matter? You're going to die anyway. And if there is no God, that's the end of you. So let me just be real blunt. I don't mean to be offensive. But if you had a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a dad or a mom, That has fought overseas and given their life for this country. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I'm thankful for them. Please please hear me. I'm very grateful. But if there is no God. What they did wasn't noble. It was stupid. If all you're going to do is die and that's the end of you anyway. Why would you go die for somebody else? If this is all there is. If this is the end. I'm kind of giving you a sneak preview of next week. If this is the end of it. this is all. You die. And that's it. You're done. You just go into nothingness. What does it matter? So only with God can you really know that the scales of justice will be balanced. So let's just, let me me put it this way. Let's suppose that without God you could have morality. All right, here's the question I'm asking you. Can you please tell me what good is morality without accountability? If this life is all there is, what difference does it make whether you live like Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler? What difference does it make without God? Those rapists that we just read about, Uh, They they got away with it. Those who are guilty of genocide, they got away with it. Without God, all those militant Islamic terrorists, they're going to get away with it. Without God, unjust judges and crooked politicians and religious hypocrites, they get away with it. So let me just tell you, this is just me, okay, this is me. Let me just tell you a major reason why I'm absolutely convinced that without God, without God, you are morally out on a limb. One thing tells me forever, and you will never change my mind on this, there is a right that never changes and there is a wrong that never changes. You know what that is? The one thing that tells me that has to be true is Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ on the cross tells me there's got to be a right that never changes and it's always right. There's got to be a wrong that's always wrong and it never, ever changes because Jesus died for the wrong so that we could be made right, and he alone decides which is which. So to put it in a good way that maybe probably better than I've tried to put it, you may remember the news commentator, Ted Koppel, who for many years was on Nightline. I don't even know if Ted Koppel's a believer or not, but he said something that's so wise, and it really summarized what I've been saying to you this morning, and I want you to listen to what he said. He said, there is harmony and inner peace to be found in following a moral compass that points in the same direction regardless of fashion or trend. He's dead right. You can call me intolerant. You can call me bigoted. You can call me a pharisaical fundamentalist. That's fine. There is a peace and a harmony in my heart of knowing Certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Abortion is wrong. Gay marriage is wrong. I just start listing them all. They're wrong. I don't care what the culture says. I don't care what the polls say. I don't care what you say. It doesn't matter. You do what's right in your own eyes. That's fine. Here's the deal. You better hope there's not a God. You better hope there's not. Because if you're doing what's right in your own eyes and you're wrong, you will stand before God give account. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 14 verse 12, "There's a way that seems right to a person, but that way ends in death." I have a compass. I do have that moral compass. And that moral compass is right here in this book. It never changes. And that's why I don't ever get confused with public opinion shifting and this changing and that. I mean, who knows what changes are going to play? I mean, think about it. who knows what's going to be considered right ten years from now. Who knows what's going to be considered wrong ten years? That's amazing how things are changing. And yet, with all this hurricane of shifting change and shifting opinion, and we used to think this was wrong, but now we've come to we, we, we we've been enlightened. We believe it's right. I just, every day, I've just got this moral compass. And it just keeps pointing north. When everybody else says, oh, no, 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 it's it's, it's pointing west. No, it points north. My youngest son, Joshua, he's an airplane pilot. And every pilot is taught one basic lesson at the beginning of their training. One basic lesson. In every air traffic control zone, you never do what is right in your eyes. That will get you killed. If you're a pilot, you don't do what's right in your eyes. You do what the control tower tells you to do, or you don't make it. And there's a simple reason for that. That controller knows things that pilot doesn't know. That controller sees things that controller doesn't see. That controller hears things that that pilot doesn't hear. And see, only the controller has the right information and the right perspective to guide that pilot to do the right thing. So I just want to give you some encouragement. I talked to, I had lunch with a man, one of the most influential men in this state. Had lunch with him Wednesday. He and I don't even have the same political persuasion to be just very candid with you. We're, we've been the best of friends for many, many years. We just don't agree on some things. He looked at me and he said, Pastor, I'm going to tell you something. He's in his late 70s now. He said, this country is in the worst shape of my lifetime. I don't care whether you believe that or not. I'm going telling tell you what he said. Here's the point. Ethically and morally and spiritually, it seems like everything seems to be changing. Seems like there's a lot of confusion out there. Now you have a choice. You can fly by the seat of your pants, you can live by your own rules, you can do what is right in your own eyes. You can do that and God will let you. I just want to be the one to give you warning so you won't come back to me and say, why didn't you tell me? If that's the way you choose to live in the 21st century, you're going to end up in a disaster. But we have a controller and his name is Jesus. And we have a manual to fly by and it's called the Word of God. And we have a compass that always points north and it never changes and it's called the law of God. And I'm telling you that when we look to Jesus and we live by his word, we'll not only know what is right, we will do what is right in the only eyes that matter. And the only eyes that matter is the God who alone decides what is right and what is wrong for all people at all time forever and forever. So let's pray together. With heads bowed, with eyes closed.